All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Mark. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Up to this point, Mark has focused on Jesus' authority. He's shown it in his teaching. He's shown it in how Jesus cast out demons. He's shown Jesus' authority in his healing and in his ability to forgive sins. And as a result of all of this, Jesus' popularity is growing. Word about him is spreading all over Galilee. And in the last scene at the beginning of Mark chapter 2, the one where Jesus healed a man to demonstrate that he had the authority to forgive sins, well, in that scene, we got the first hint of conflict with religious leaders. Well, now in this scene and in the one that follows, Mark shows the growing tension as Jesus challenges traditional customs and traditional practices, and the Pharisees specifically take issue with him. In this snapshot here in Mark chapter 2, 13 through 22, we have two specific scenes that describe two interchanges with the Pharisees where there is tension and conflict between them and their vision and their values and Jesus and Jesus' vision and Jesus' values. Here's what happens in the first interchange, verse 13. And he, that is Jesus, went out again by the seashore and all the people were coming to him and he was teaching them. And so Jesus goes out by the seashore, specifically the seashore of the Sea of Galilee, somewhere probably close to Capernaum, but maybe outside of town. Interestingly enough, a professional audio engineer in the 1970s actually did a test on one of the coves right outside of uh, the city of Capernaum, just testing the kind of acoustics of it. And he discovered that a lot of these coves around the seashore of the Sea of Galilee function almost like natural amphitheaters, amplifying the sound and the sound traveling naturally up the hill towards maybe crowds on the hillside, but even back down the hill towards somebody who's at the bottom of the hill down by the seashore. And so these natural amphitheaters in the coves seem to be places that Jesus took advantage of for teaching the crowds. And so here he is by the seashore. People are coming to him. He's teaching them. Mark continues the story in verse 14 with Jesus and his disciples now having moved back into the city of Capernaum. And this is what happens, verse 14. As he passed by, so he's he's come in from teaching, he's walking into town, and he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. So here we are back in town. And as Jesus is coming into town, he passes by the tax booth of one Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, Levi is also known as Matthew. You can see that in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. So this is Matthew. Matthew Levi. He is a tax collector and he's working at his tax office, as it's translated here, which likely refers to some sort of toll booth type thing where taxes were collected, particularly on goods that were in transit. Capernaum sat near a major highway and near the border of other regions, and thus it was a key collection point for goods that moved in and out of uh, the region of Galilee and into then some of the other regions nearby. And so here's Levi at his toll booth, his tax booth, and Jesus calls him to follow him. And tax collectors were notoriously despised by the Jews because they had a reputation for dishonesty, uh, because they were known to charge 
extra surcharges so that they could actually profit off of the whole thing and make more money because they were collaborators with the oppressive uh, foreigners, the Romans, and they worked with them collecting taxes on their behalf. And so someone like Levi, as a tax collector, was despised by the average Jews, and especially by the religious leaders like the Pharisees who sought to be pure and holy and looked down on the Romans. But in the kingdom of Jesus, Levi is welcome. And so like Peter and Andrew, like James and John, when Jesus calls Levi, he doesn't hesitate. Notice he closes up shop and he follows him immediately. Well, this leads to the first interchange with the Pharisees where they question Jesus's righteousness as a result of his actions. This first interchange happens at Levi's house with what appears to be Levi's associates. Verse 15, and it happened that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in his house And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. A couple things to note. Notice it says that he was reclining at table in Levi's house. Reclining at table indicates that this is a formal banquet or a formal dinner party, and guests would actually recline on cushions around a low table. So what we would presume here is, is that after Levi was called to follow Jesus, Levi threw a banquet, a dinner party, in with Jesus being the guest of honor, and Levi invites over uh, many of his kind of associates, well-known members from his circle, but notice they are tax collectors and sinners. In other words, they're other tax collectors. They're people in the category of sinners. Um, We would describe these people as like the lowlifes of society. These are people of questionable character. These are the kind of people that righteous folks would never hang out with. Sinners, when it says tax collectors and sinners in verse 15, sinners as a category here, refers to people of suspect moral character, scoundrels, people from the underbelly of society, the kind of people that righteous folks would never be caught dead with. And notice that it it emphasizes many of them, like many tax collectors and sinners. And then it says again, for there were many of them. I mean, Mark is emphasizing the fact that we're not just talking about two or three or maybe even just a handful. We're talking about a pretty large group of people who from the righteous Pharisees, from a righteous Jew's perspective, were the kind of people you would never go to that part of town. You would never talk to those people. Those are the kind of people you wouldn't want your kids around, right? It's those kinds of people, and there's a lot of them. And Jesus is eating with them. He's not just, you know, talking to them. He's even eating with them. And it would be difficult to overstate the significance of that. Meals in the ancient world, meals in Israel, meals in the Mediterranean world of Jesus' day were important social statements. Like ate with like. You ate with social equals. You ate with people, you know, of religious equals among the Jews. So like ate with like. If there was conflict between, you know, two families or two people, then reconciliation would be embodied in eating a meal together. That's how significant it was. This was a way to embody reconciliation where there was conflict. Um, And so eating together was not just a casual sort of informal thing, particularly at a, a, a specific dinner banquet. A Pharisee 
would never have eaten in the home of even a common Jew, not to mention a sinner, because a Pharisee couldn't know the state of ritual purity of the food and ritual purity of the dishes, and so didn't want to risk his ritual purity, and so he never would have done that. So for Jesus to eat with scoundrels like this, for people, for Jesus to eat with people of questionable reputation and character like this, well, that clearly called into question Jesus's piety and Jesus's righteousness. So here's what happens. Verse 16, when the scribes of the Pharisees uh, saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, that he's eating with them, they said to his disciples, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? We've repeated the refrain, tax collectors and sinners, multiple times in the last few verses because Mark wants to emphasize these are the kind of people that Jesus welcomed into his kingdom and was willing to eat with. And here we have the scribes of the Pharisees. Uh, normally, you have scribes and Pharisees. They're kind of the Pharisees are a particular religious movement, a Jewish purity movement. Scribes would have been experts in the Old Testament law and in the traditions of the fathers. And so you have these Pharisaic scribes, experts in the Old Testament law, experts in the religious traditions. They're the ones that come to some of Jesus' disciples and really say, why is he doing this? Why? This calls into question, obviously, his, his righteousness. He certainly couldn't be a pure man of God if he were doing this. That's their thinking. Um, if you want to know more about the Pharisees, listen to the intro to the Gospels recording. It'll give more backgrounds of some of the religious parties that we bump into in the Gospels, and you can learn more about the Pharisees. But theologically, Jesus had a lot in common, actually, with the Pharisees. But at the same time, Jesus had a very different vision of God's kingdom. And that showed up in the fact that Jesus extended an open invitation to people like the tax collectors and the, the, the sinners, and it confounded the Pharisees. They, they couldn't figure out how that could be righteous in any sort of way. So they ask, why is he eating with the tax collectors and sinners? And verse 17 then gives us Jesus' response. It says that he says this, hearing this, so when Jesus became aware that they were asking this question, Jesus said to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, this idea of healthy people don't need a doctor was sort of a popular saying. We, we see it in some other teachings and writings uh, of the day. And so it was a popular saying. And so Jesus takes this well-known saying, and applies it to his ministry. And in doing so, he indicates that sin is sort of like a sickness. We see the same idea, for example, in the Old Testament prophets, like Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, where sin is pictured as a sickness. It says there that the heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Right? And so sin is not just something you do wrong, it's something that infects a person and makes them sick. And interestingly enough, when Jesus uses this picture for his ministry, Jesus is, is saying that the tax collectors and sinners are sick. He doesn't deny that they're diseased, right? He doesn't pretend like their choices or their lifestyle is the same as, and maybe even just as good as, the righteous folks. He's not saying that. He doesn't believe that. His acceptance of the tax collectors and sinners does not entail that they've done nothing wrong. 
his welcome of them, his eating with them, does not entail that they don't need, quote unquote, cured. Rather, it presupposes that they need it. In other words, and this is really important for us to understand Jesus, in other words, Jesus doesn't lower the bar of holiness to welcome them and make them feel good about themselves as if they've done nothing wrong and don't need to change anything. No, that's not how Jesus approaches it. Jesus loves them even though they haven't measured up to the bar of holiness. So the bar of holiness is still high. They haven't measured up to it, and yet Jesus loves them and loves them enough to welcome them to himself so that they can be cured. Jesus knows that he's like a doctor for people who have sin sickness, and the only way they're going to get cured is if they can come to him and he can show them a new way of life and provide them the grace and the help they need to become something more than they currently are. All right, now that's the first interchange here in this scene, and it entails a whole new vision of who is welcome in God's kingdom. In verse 18 and following, we get the second interchange, and it has to do with the practice of fasting. Here's what happens. Verse 18 says, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So disciples of John the Baptist, that's John, and disciples of the Pharisees, people who are followers of the Pharisees and the Pharisaic school of thought who are being trained by them, they were fasting. Notice, were fasting regularly, not just occasionally. They were regularly fasting. Fasting refers to abstaining from food for a set period of time to seek God. Now, there's other forms of fasting, but that's the most basic uh, expression of or practice of fasting, abstaining from food for a set period of time to seek God. Uh, in the biblical worldview, you could, you could fast to express your repentance, you could fast to express grief or sorrow, or you could, you could fast just generally as a means of seeking after God. The Old Testament law itself only specified one fast per year on the Day of Atonement. But other occasions of fasting are seen throughout the Old Testament, and by the time of Jesus' day here in the first century, there were various traditions among the Jews of fasting. The Pharisees, for example, which is who Jesus is interacting with here, well, they fasted every Monday and every Thursday as a part of their religious expression. It was just a common part of their religious life. Well, if Jesus, from their perspective, if Jesus was a righteous man, and a teacher of God's way, then why don't his disciples fast? That's the question they ask. Look at the rest of verse 18. These guys are fasting regularly, and they came, and they said to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And so this is their question. Like, if you're actually teaching the way of God, why don't you fast? Um, and this is a real question. Like, Jesus was known almost as a party animal among the Pharisees to a certain extent, right? Like, he was constantly going to banquets. He was having banquets with the, the tax collectors and sinners. Like, he was eating with the wrong people. He's partying with the wrong people. He's known for going to lots of banquets. He's, he's feasting, but he's not fasting. And they're like, hmm, and this raises real suspicion in their mind. Well, Jesus answers this question about fasting with three word pictures, three analogies. A, the picture of a wedding, 
a picture of a patch on cloth, and the picture of wineskins. Let's take each in turn. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, While the groom is with them, the attendants of the groom cannot fast, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. So Jesus compares himself to a groom at a wedding feast. And he refers to here the attendants of the groom. And he says that at the wedding feast, the attendants of the groom can't fast. Who are these attendants of the groom? Well, it depends on your translation, actually. This one that I'm working out of says attendants of the groom. Some translations say wedding guest, and that's because the word or the phrase that lies behind this could refer to wedding guests in general, although it referred usually to important guests, more central guests at a wedding feast, or it could refer to specifically like what we would call groomsmen, attendants of the groom. Literally, it's children of the wedding hall. Um, and Bauer Art and Gingrich, a well-known Greek lexicon, says it refers to people who typically stood closest to the groom, and they had a key part to play in making sure the festivities went along well. And that's why uh, it gets translated here, attendance of the groom, because they're asking about Jesus' disciples. He's comparing himself to the groom. So it's guests at a wedding feast close to a groom. And Jewish wedding feasts were not just like, you know, a half an hour wedding service and a a couple hour uh, reception. Jewish wedding feasts were huge social affairs. They were giant celebrations for whole villages. They typically lasted a week or longer. No one during such a big social gathering that impacted and was a time of celebration and joy for the entire village, no one in that occasion would fast. But Jesus isn't against fasting per se. There's a right time and a place for it. So Jesus goes on to say in verse 20, he says, But the days will come when the groom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. Literally, when the wedding feast is over, then it's appropriate to resume your regular fast. That's sort of the idea. Um, This hints at, in view of the analogy, Jesus leaving maybe even hinting at initially with his death, and then what follows that. Uh, Jesus is indicating that he is going to be taken away, right? When the groom is taken away. Uh, This particular form of the word taken away is used only here in the New Testament. But it's a form that's uh, used in other places. It's a form of a word that's used in other places. One such place is uh, Isaiah 53 in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And Isaiah 53 is the passage about the suffering servant. And in Isaiah 53, it says this, By oppression and judgment, he, the servant, was taken away. It may be that Jesus is alluding to or hinting at that passage and thus hinting at his death. Either way, what what Jesus is saying is there's going to come a time when he's no longer going to be around and thus the celebration, the wedding feast of his Uh, His presence is over, and in that day, it'll be appropriate for his disciples to fast. That's the first word picture, the first analogy. The second analogy is a patch on cloth. Verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, uh, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. In other words, if you take a a patch of new cloth that has not been shrunk, and you patch up a cloth with that, 
when it gets wet, that patch now is going to shrink and all of a sudden you're actually going to make a worse tear in the old garment. And so you got to shrink that patch first. Um, that's the point of the imagery. Uh, then we get another analogy with wineskins. It says this in verse 22. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost and the skins will be ruined. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Notice both the analogy of the patch and the analogy here of the wineskins emphasizes new and old. New wine, old wineskins. You put new wine into new wineskins. Um, and so both these analogies are emphasizing newness over against oldness. Now, just to clarify, what's a wineskin? Well, a wineskin was a leather pouch, a leather bag that they would put wine into. The reason you would have to put new wine into a new skin was because a new skin was still uh, supple enough that as the wine kind of still fermented within the wineskin and there was a buildup of gases, uh, that that bag, that leather pouch would continue to stretch and expand to hold the wine in it. An old skin was already brittle and stiff. And so as you put the wine into it, then all of a sudden those gases begin to build up and the wine skin just can't stretch. And all of a sudden, boom, it's going to burst open. That's what it says here. All that new wine is going to just be wasted and pour out on the floor. You've lost the skin. You've lost the wine. Not good. So you got to put new wine into fresh or new wineskins. So from the imagery of the groom, the imagery of the patch, and the imagery of the wineskin, what do we learn about Jesus' ministry and about fasting from these three word pictures? Well, one of the things we learn is that Jesus is bringing something new. He's bringing in something new that doesn't fit with the old traditional forms. What we've been told is he's ushering in, he's inaugurating, the kingdom of God. He's not just patching up the old, but he's bringing a brand new thing as the culmination of everything that God had promised. The age of promise is now giving way in the person of Jesus to the age of fulfillment. New creation is coming, and with it, new forms will be needed for how God's people are going to do things. Um, and so there will be newness needed. That's one of the things we learn from these imageries. Uh, another thing we learn here is that fasting, even in the new creation, even in this new uh, kingdom of Jesus, fasting is still appropriate. The newness doesn't mean that fasting is inappropriate. In fact, Jesus himself fasted for 40 days. Jesus gave instructions in Matthew chapter 6 for how his disciples should fast and fast differently than how the Pharisees fast. And here, Jesus says that when he's taken away, fasting is appropriate, which seems to suggest, uh, really, the third thing we learn from it, that this new fasting includes a new focus. That new focus is on the absence of the groom. The groom, Jesus, is taken away. And so one of the things that's new about fasting in the kingdom of God is that it has as its focus the absence of the king and the desire for his return, uh, the desire for him to complete the task of making all things new. And so fasting in the kingdom of Jesus is new. And one of the ways it's new is that it has to do with Jesus at the center, Jesus' kingdom at the center, and Jesus really 
completing the work that he began when he first came. And so there's this longing for his return and the, the completion of all that he has begun. Now, to wrap up this section, just remember we have two snapshots in this scene that emphasize growing tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. And that tension is going to continue to grow all throughout his ministry. The next snapshot, the next scene that Mark is going to give us, continues to highlight that growing tension culminating in the Pharisees' desire to do away with Jesus. Thanks for tuning in to this session of the Listener's Commentary on the New Testament. The Listener's Commentary is a crowd-funded Bible teaching effort that's made possible by the generosity of people just like you. So thanks a ton if you're one of the people who make this ministry possible. And if you want to join the team of supporters, there's a link down in the notes below, or you can just swing on over to listenerscommentary.com. Click the Give tab up on the top, and you can set up a one-time or a monthly recurring donation there. Monthly donors receive free access to the Listener's Commentary Study Hub. Thanks a ton for your support.